BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media. But now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. So I'm about to uh, get on the Amtrak uh, train in New York. Last week, I took a short trip. So if you're wondering why I was on this Amtrak train to D.C., and for that matter, if you're wondering why this episode just popped up in your podcast feed, well, here's what happened. We originally taped and released the first six episodes of this series, which hopefully you've already heard, and we thought that was the end of it. But then we heard from our main character. We had asked Newt Gingrich to take part in an interview for the first six episodes, and we'd been unable to arrange anything. You probably heard that during the first six episodes. But once we released all six of them, the executive producer of Newt Gingrich's podcast reached out, and we settled on a time for me to interview him. Thank Thank you you very much. Have a good one. I also agreed to be on his podcast at a later date. I was thrilled we were going to get this chance because obviously Newt Gingrich is central to the entire story we told. Oh, with the Gingrich? Yes. yes. But it turned out he had listened to all six episodes of the podcast and he had plenty of thoughts about our story and about everything that's happened in American politics since. So my producer Adam and I got off the train in D.C., took a short car ride to Northern Virginia. Hello. Hi. Hi. How are y'all? And we found ourselves in the office of Newt Gingrich. Hello, hello. Hi. How are you? I'm Adam. Nice to meet you. Speaker Steve Kornacki. Yeah. How are you? You did a good series of podcasts. Appreciate hearing that. Uh, very impressed. I, th- I thought number six was wrong, but... <laughs> <laughs> number six. That's episode six, when we convened a panel of journalists who covered Newt while he was in the house and tried to sketch out his legacy. Newt heard that, and he decided he had something to say. I would argue that while we were winning the political wars, we were losing the cultural wars, and that the society culturally was moving much further to the left at the very time that politically it was moving to the right. And that's the tension we're currently living in. I'm Steve Kornacki, and this is The Revolution. Episode 7, 
Newt Gingrich. Before we dive in, I should say that this interview has been edited for time and clarity. This was a um, um, an unexpected surprise on our part. We um, we had hoped, um, obviously, and anybody who's listened to the first six episodes know we reached out a couple times trying to uh, get you in the mix. Um, I'm curious why um, why did you end up reaching out to us uh, afterwards? Well, I, and I think we we sort of wanted to do it, and scheduling kept interfering, uh, and the election and the campaign and all that stuff, and. Uh, Frankly, when I listened to the first five episodes, I was so impressed with the authenticity and the balance of the program that I thought uh, it was appropriate to sort of become part of it. And uh, then when I listened to the sixth tape, I decided that you needed the balance of somebody uh, who wasn't uh, an, an automatic critic, if I can put it that way. The sixth episode was so, our, our so roundtable but, but, discussion. But I, want, I do want to commend you and your team, I think. Uh, it was a remarkably useful uh, contribution to history to have uh, the way you guys did it. I appreciate you saying that. So the sixth episode, obviously, that was our that was our roundtable discussion, yes. and, and we'll get your take on everything that was raised in that episode. I think in in, in the course of our conversation, I, I think maybe a good starting point though would be taking the sixth episode aside. The the first five, the story we tell of the path from the late 70s to 1994 to the Republican majority, are there particular aspects of that that resonated strongly with you and you thought that was right? And were there aspects of it that you looked at and said, they got something wrong there? The the biggest thing I think that I reacted to and I was was this notion that we had somehow failed. Um, somewhere between welfare reform, the capital gains tax cut, Medicare reform, uh, Food and Drug Administration reform, telecommunications reform, uh, and finally uh, four consecutive balanced budgets for the only time in your lifetime. I thought we were pretty successful. We had fundamentally changed the balance of power in Washington for the first time in 40 years. Uh, And you could argue longer than that because we were the first reelected Republican majority since 1928. The majority we created lasted till 2006 and was big enough that even in defeat, it was capable of coming back in 2010. So from my perspective, both on a policy front and on a political front, we'd been really successful. And frankly, I didn't think I had more than four years when I got elected because I, uh, I was elected as a genuine revolutionary. I was taking on the entire national establishment, and I figured there was a half-life of doing that. And I I would argue that while I personally paid a price for that, that was more than worth it because we had fundamentally shifted the direction of the country. And I think had George W. Bush had a clue what we had done, that uh, it would have sustained itself far longer than it did. So you're talking about the speakership itself and and the years to follow, and I I, want to come back around to that, but I, I, I guess maybe start out here revisiting the road to the majority a little right. bit, because a, a few things I I want to ask you about. One is this. You get to the House in 1978, and you believe there can be a Republican 
majority someday. And that is, as we try to get across to folks in this podcast, that's a, that's a pretty radical belief to hold in the 1970s. Um, when you got there in 1978, how long did you think it was going to take? No, I, I don't think I thought in those terms. Um, I mean, I thought, first of all, mathematically, it was very unlikely that you would continue a one-party dominance forever. So by definition, at some point, we'd be a majority. I think that I probably, if you had asked me in 78, I probably thought it was a four- to six-year process. Yeah, because this is what occurred to me while we were putting this together. There's all of these major events that are playing out in the House that you're central to in this period, in the 70s and the 80s. And there's your, your fight with Tip O'Neill on the floor, and there's C-SPAN's arrival, and Jim Wright. And you, you get into the early 90s, and numerically, you are no closer to a majority than you had been a decade earlier. Was there a point in there when you're saying, this just isn't going to happen? No. I think one of the characteristics, when, when I listen to the first five, which are the historical part of your program, uh, I was struck with two things. One was how much we had done. And the other was um, how often it didn't work. I mean, you know, it, we, were, we, were, we were sort of like a classic siege campaign in which we were battering at the walls of the castle and trying to figure out some way to get into the castle. Uh, and... Uh, you know, if you'd sort of say, well, that didn't work. Let's think, well, you know, what's the next thing we can try? So I think from that standpoint, I really believed, partly because I'm, I'm a historian by training, that, you know, cheerful persistence. My dad had been a career infantryman for 26 years. And I think uh, that whole process of growing up in the Army and of thinking about uh, endurance— the, you know, I mean, Washington took eight years to win independence and uh, didn't win very many battles, but he endured. And, and you're, um, you had two battles you were fighting. You had a battle against the Democratic Party that you're trying to topple, but you had battles within your own party in terms of trying to sure. win them over to a direction. It seems to me, tell, tell me if this is wrong, but... Um, you saw potential in media, potential in television in particular, the cameras coming to the house, to nationalize politics earlier than most in either party. Do you think that's a fair? Yeah, my, Michael Barone once wrote that I was a, that I was a Gaullist, that like de Gaulle, I combined nationalism and technology. And I think that um, I'd always had a fascination with technology. I'd uh, studied computing at Georgia Tech, uh, just as a side. I never went to Tech, but I, but as early as 1965, I was studying uh, computing. I um, had studied McLuhan and had a pretty good sense of the whole notion of television, and it had modified my behavior. I did my first radio interview and television interviews in the summer of 1960 uh, when I was between my junior and senior years in high school. Um, I wrote my first newspaper article when I was, uh, I think, 11. My whole career had been built around the media, and I'd risen through the media uh, in Georgia. You know, my first campaign was like $85,000, but I had enough ties to the media, and I was able to generate enough noise. You know, and a lot of politics is about noise. 
How essential were the cameras in the house, television cameras in the house, C-SPAN, and just the, the presence of cameras coming to the house basically when you got there? How essential was that to pulling off 1994 ultimately and everything that led to it? Could it have happened if, Probably, if cameras weren't there? No, it's, well, yes, it could have happened, but it would have been different. I mean, the Jacksonians did it by mailing newspapers. So, you know, uh, Lincoln did it without television or – I mean, every every generation's leadership has to understand the technology of communication for that generation. So FDR did uh, radio, you know, because he understood. John F. Kennedy did television. I, I, I would say that C-SPAN was enormously empowering and several ways. Art Pine took me out to dinner one night, and he said, you know, in the old days, they had um, they had the whales and the minnows. And the whales were people like Richard Russell, and they were the eight or 10 or 12 people who really mattered. And everybody else was a minnow. He said, that system has broken down. And nobody now knows what the hierarchy is. And so noise becomes a hierarchical signal. Now, by pure luck, Probably the most popular radio show at drive time was Braden and Buchanan. And Buchanan decided to go on strike for more money. And so they were desperate for conservatives to sit in with Braden. And here I am as a young freshman with nothing. You know, and I recognize freshmen don't have that much impact and they don't have much to do anyway. And this, just, this is Tom Braden, Pat Buchanan, who would go on to be the first host of Crossfire yes, on exactly. CNN. So this, their, I, this is a radio would, show. Which I would later the, on the join the Crossfire. Right. But they're, they're, they were doing radio drive time. So sometime, I think, in the spring of my first year, I get this call that says, would you like to come? in the afternoon, and substitute for Buchanan. So for, I don't know, six or eight weeks, I would go probably twice a week, and you'd get three hours of Gingrich arguing with Braden. Well, the impact it had was, you're a typical Washington bureaucrat. You're driving home. You're listening to this guy with a slightly strange voice and a weird name. And so all of a sudden, I went from being an unknown backbencher to sort of a mid-level member in the first year I was there by the, just because of the power of drive-time radio in Washington. So that, that would be a typical example. C-SPAN made that, I mean, I almost immediately understood that C-SPAN was the opportunity to reach out and educate the country and to develop a signaling system that much of the media would watch. I mean, so again, you're, here you are, you're a backbencher. In a committee meeting, you don't have much influence, but... In an hour-long special order, particularly if, if you've been a college teacher and you're used to hour-long special orders, they're called lectures, you can have a real impact. So very early on, I, 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 Brian Lamb launched it. You'd have to check, but my guess is by May or June, I was already on C-SPAN. I, I was actually surprised you weren't the first and it was Al Gore. But then if I, if I had to guess outside of Newt Gingrich, who was the who would have been the first member in the House in that era to CTV, the potential of it, I would have guessed Gore would probably be my second choice. So I guess that made some sense. I mean, is there, has there been a downside to cameras in the House? Well, I, look, I think, I don't know that it's particularly big downside. If you take the combination of cameras and Internet, uh, the more radical the member, you know, whether it's uh, Marjorie Green or it's AOC, uh, the, the greater their capacity to attract a a small sliver of a huge country. You know, and a small sliver can be 500,000 people. Uh, so in that sense, it has some impact. 
Uh, I think on balance, it's largely an advantage, but that's partly because I'm a genuine populist. I mean, I, I think it's good to have the chaos of 330 or 340 million people. What were you—so C-SPAN— was and is, you know, it's, it's sort of a, a niche audience. It's not going to, you know, it's not right. going to draw tens of millions. But from your strategic standpoint, in the 1980s, you're giving these special order speeches. It's a key tool for you. Who in your mind is your audience? Who are you talking to? Well, in the 80s, the news media, the Reagan speech staff, um, other members, and then uh, interested Republicans around the country. There was a group in, of women in Waterloo, uh, Iowa, who were all Republican activists. And when we would do special orders, they'd call each other and say, oh, you got to turn on C-SPAN. And one of them was in Puerto Rico and ran into Jack Kemp and said, oh, Mr. Kemp, do you really serve in the House? And he said, oh, yes, I do. She said, do you know Bob Walker? (laughs) The idea— that Kemp was irrelevant, but Walker mattered, was so sh- so shook Jack up. And we later on had T-shirts made up that said, I know Bob Walker. But again, I mean, here's a guy from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, who has a following in Waterloo, Iowa. Well, look, if you're a guerrilla movement, which is what we were, and you're the minority of the minority, any sign of hope helps. So whatever group we were appealing to out there, and clearly at one level— I was beginning to build a national reputation uh, just by sheer persistence, and a piece of that was C-SPAN. It wasn't, wasn't the core piece, but it was a significant piece. But I was, you know, I was also communicating to our members, and that was an important part of this. We were trying to take a, a moribund Republican base that was defeated in the 70s, had lost any sense of purpose, and we were trying to get them re-energized with real ideas. The whole Jim Wright episode, obviously, we, we spent a lot of time on. The transition from Tip O'Neill as a speaker to Jim Wright as a speaker, um, how much did that, was that a necessary ingredient for you? And I ask because I'm, I'm curious if a campaign like you waged against Wright, would that have even been possible against somebody like Tip no. O'Neill? Look, O'Neill, who was first elected in 36 to the state legislature, was a great Irish politician. Uh, I had enormous respect for him. And he played by the rules. I mean, he played hardball, but there was hardball inside a frame of reference. Wright, who had been very good to me, and when I I moved to expel Diggs, which one of the things I had forgotten was how early in my— Time there. Several months in. It's like, you know, just like you arrived, you unpacked, and you went out and picked a fight. Um, (laughs) Wright was very gentlemanly, helped me think through the choreography. Uh, Literally, here I am as a brand new freshman dealing with the majority leader uh, and and doing so in a way that very few Republicans ever did. So I, I wasn't hostile to Wright, but Wright did not understand that at the heart of the system, has to be a mutuality. Every 435 people win elections. They all come to the Congress. They all have rights. And you get to win if you're the majority, but you have to win within the framework of mutuality. Uh, 
right when in doubt, would bully people. I, I saw him one time with a Democrat have the guy up, literally up against the wall in public, berating him because the guy hadn't voted right. And I thought that it was a level of personal abuse that was dangerous if you were going to be as powerful as the Speaker of the House. And so Wright resigned. And, and people then blamed me, and I kept saying to him, it's a little bit like my fight with George H.W. Bush, which is he broke his word over taxes. I didn't. Well, it wasn't my fault that Wright had done enough stuff that a committee that was had a majority of Democrats, or that was chaired by a Democrat, I think they were equal number, uh, the committee unanimously thought that he had done really bad things. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Throughout history, there are clear moments that define our nation's path, and now you can own a piece of that history. I'm thrilled to announce the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition, one-ounce silver coin commemorates the historic victory in 1994 when the Republican Party, under my leadership, took control of Congress. The Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin also symbolizes the transformative political platform that led to landmark achievements like the overhaul of the welfare system and the Balanced Budget Act. This holiday season, give the gift of history. The Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin is more than an investment. It's a tribute to honest government and to America. Available to order right now by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043. Or order online at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. We talked to Leon Panetta, you know, in, in, in the podcast, and I don't think this quote actually made it into the podcast, but I want to read it to you because I'm sure it's a criticism you've heard before, and I think it's sort of, the, this is a succinct expression of the criticism uh, of how you handled these years, right, in other instance, instances, the, 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 the way you kind of went about creating the majority in the House. Panetta says, there were a lot of factors at play here. 
But I think the thing that really kind of sent the House in the wrong direction was the fact that Newt and some of the other Republicans at that time decided that with television in the House, the best thing to do was to really try to undermine the faith of the American people in the institution of the House. And I think that hurt the House, and it frankly hurt both Republicans and Democrats. It was a strategy that basically said, we are going to undermine faith in the House, even if it hurts Republicans, because it's about this larger mission of tearing the place down in order to get power. That that argument that you torched the place, and that's what got you to power, but also permanently wrecked Congress, essentially. What, what, what do you say to critics who say that? Well, I mean, first of all, I, I, I like Leon, and I admire him, and we've been friends. Uh, but remember that Leon is the Democrat who chaired the committee, which stole the seat in Indiana. And when it came down to it, in the end, he did what Tony Coelho told him to, which was steal the seat. Look, somebody wrote a book the other week. I haven't had time to really critique, but I'd like to, about the destructionist. Well, they're right. I set out with three goals. Change the welfare state, defeat the Democrats in Congress, and defeat the Soviet empire. Well, you could argue if you were a good Soviet that I was a destructionist. You could argue if you're a good Democrat that I was a destructionist. And you could argue if you were a liberal who believed in the original welfare state that I was a destructionist. I... That's what. That's why I was elected. I wasn't trying to, and I think I think it is a gross exaggeration to identify the House with the Democratic Party. Uh, so I'm not quite sure what the complaint is, except that I came along like Reagan, and I actually made the right effective, and that was of course seen as a grave sin by the Democrats. And, a lot of them never forgave me for ending the 40 years of domination because suddenly they went from being in charge to being the ranking member. They went from having a huge staff to having a small staff, and they didn't like it. I mean, I don't blame them, but uh, they could have also looked at, you know, it was the end of 40 years, and maybe it was time. Folks who've heard this podcast, this will be fresh in their minds, uh, presumably. Yeah, but after the 84 election, there's an unresolved House race in Indiana, the 8th District of Indiana. And the Republican candidate out there, Rick McIntyre, gets certified as the winner by the Secretary of State. But, of course, the Constitution gives the House the power ultimately to be the judge of its own elections. And the Democrats control the House. And the Democrats end up refusing to seat either candidate from that race, Frank McCloskey, the incumbent, or Rick McIntyre. And this whole process ensues where Leon Panetta, Democrat from California, chairs a three-member committee that investigates the election. Two Democrats, one Republican. All the crucial votes go two to one, Democrats against Republicans. And ultimately, McCloskey gets declared the winner on not quite a partisan vote, but pretty close to a partisan vote in the House, and the Republicans walk out of the chamber. So that's what you're referring to when you talk about Leon Panetta's role. And you you believe, because we talked to Panetta, and he thinks ultimately they made the right decision. You, you think it was theft. Well, I mean, first of all, they can't explain the votes they didn't count because they stopped counting uh, when they were ahead by four votes. And we've always believed that the rest of the votes might well have been McIntyre, in which case they would have had to seat McIntyre. But I had been telling them for at least two months. I was on House administration. Bill Thomas, who'd been my roommate and who came in with me, was the Republican on that committee. And Bill Schweitzer was our lawyer for that committee. And I kept telling both Thomas and Schweitzer, they're going to steal it. That this is Tony Coelho's wife lives in that district. Tony is not going to be embarrassed. And in the end, they're going to steal it. 
And finally, they came back to me after it was over, and Schweitzer said, you were right. When you say steel, because do you think Panetta thought that's what he was doing? Do you think he believed that McIntyre actually won the race? The great virtue of being a machine politician is that you can do the most ridiculous thing with the straight face. Now, you have to ask Panetta, why did they quit counting? There were literally more than enough votes outstanding that McIntyre could have won. We talk in in the episode, play audio, in fact, of all of the Republicans walking out, including, I, I thought most significantly, Bob Michael. That was a big turning point in the House, wasn't it? It was, it was a major step towards a more militant Republican Party. And again, I think in terms of why Leon has a hard case— you know, Bill Thomas convinced the conference that it was stolen. Bob Michael walked out because he was convinced it was stolen. And the person who stole it was Leon Panetta. Did you talk to him with Panetta about that in no, the, subsequent the, years? Look, what is he going to say? He's, he's going to say, we don't agree. And I would say, so why didn't you count the last votes? And he'd give me some nonsense answer. He's, I mean, he's not stupid. He's a very smart man. Uh, but at this moment in time, he was under enormous pressure, and his career would have been different had he reported a Republican victory. I mean, the argument is also made, <clears throat> I guess, that and it, it, we have voices in this podcast who, who express it, that what's changed in the House over the last, say, four decades or so um, has been a decline in civility has been a decline in collegiality between members of opposing parties. And with that has come the cost of, generally speaking, a lot less bipartisanship, a lot less work across the aisles, a lot more polarization, and members who just fundamentally um, don't even know or understand each other anymore. Is, 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 that, something, is that something you've seen? Uh, and is that something that y- you— look back to the house that you first entered in 1978 and say, hey, maybe maybe there was something working there that I didn't fully appreciate at the time. Um, well, I mean, look, uh, I was assigned to house administration and to public works. They're both essentially bipartisan, although house administration when it fought over, over election law wasn't, but most of the time it was. Um, what happened that, that, that is different is that we're in the middle of a cultural civil war. The gap between the left and the right is as big as it's been at any time in modern America. And it's genuine and it's deep. And so each side would love to have civility on their terms. Um, neither side is prepared to have civility on the other side's terms. And they have almost no ability to compromise in the middle. So you end up with Pelosi ramming through every single major piece of legislation on a partisan line, on a party line vote. I mean, every single one. And then we're told that we are somehow disruptive. I would just say the tensions are a reflection of reality. They're not the cause of reality. I want to talk a little bit about your tenure as speaker, but I I guess as a prelude to that, thinking back to November 8th, ninety four. What do you remember about that night? Well, it was amazing. I mean, first of all, 
I had been confident since September 17th that we would be a majority. Um, and we had been planning the speakership for six weeks. What made you cut? What was the magic of well, September? It's a great story, which, I, which I'm actually going to talk about at length in, in uh, the upcoming book on March the Majority. Um, we were taking off the, the Dan Meyer, who was my chief of staff and is now Kevin McCarthy's chief of staff, having served uh, George W. Bush as legislative liaison in between. Um, Meyer was on the plane. Steve Hanser, who was my closest advisor, Joe Gaylord, who was my political partner, and Kerry Knott, who was Dick Army's chief of staff. And we were going to go on, a, I think, maybe a four-day swing on a private plane where we were going to raise money and do events. And we were going to plan in between. So we are taking off at National. And I said, all right, are we planning for a majority or are we planning for the minority? I just, which plan are we doing? And Gaylord said, well, you better be planning for to be speaker because you're going to be. At which point Meyer said, wait a second, you know, you have to explain this. So Joe started in Maine and went through 435 districts by memory and said we would pick up uh, 53 seats. He actually picked up 54. Though the only one he missed was Rostinkowski. <laughs> it never no occurred, had that it never occurred yeah. to us that an unknown you know, lawyer would defeat Rostinkowski in downtown Chicago. Michael Flanagan, right? That's right. Yeah. So I trusted Joe enough that from that point on, I assumed we'd be a majority. I mean, I'd, I didn't know if it would be 53, but I was, I was confident that he was not off enough for us to be a minority. So by the 8th of November, uh, we pretty well knew we were going to be a majority. And that was, but that was a, you were, you had that confidence, but I mean, I can, I, I was a, a teenager, but I was, um, I guess as you were <laughs> into politics as a teenager. Yeah. So I, I remember it very well. And I, I remember absorbing the consensus in the media coverage and it was right to the day, not going to happen. It was going to oh, be a good night for Republicans, if you, if but it wasn't going to be. If you look at the shock that night, yeah. I mean, the, on, the only other time that was comparable was Trump's victory, which if you watch the, you, know, you go to YouTube and pull up those, and you watch the look on people's faces. Yeah, I was part of the coverage in 16. Yeah. So I can... Well, as I say, very similar. Yeah. So we had a huge crowd that night. Uh, Sean Hannity was the host. He was an Atlanta talk radio host I at made, that time. I made was two that mistakes that night, which I regret. One, one I, well, I, I regret both of them. One, the bigger mistake was I didn't take the call from Clinton initially. And it was just because we were busy and we were doing stuff. And I figured, you know. The president, but, the president but, called and you, you said no? Called, and it was just stupid on my part. It's the dumbest thing I did that night. And then second, I was doing some walking interview, with, which was one of my traits, which gets me in trouble regularly. Uh, and a lesson I never fully learned is when you get to that level, you're no longer an analyst. So... We were walking along, and I said, look, you have to understand how much Bill and Hillary were McGovernites. Well, that became a story, of course, the next day. Gingrich calls. Yeah, I think uh, counterculture McGovernix was that yeah, the term? Yeah. yeah. And that was just stupid because it distracted from what I should have been saying. So I give myself bad marks on those two. On the other hand, uh, late in the evening, I met with 20 or 30 of our strongest supporters. I mean, we had people— who had been supporting this effort through GOPAC and through the NRCC, et cetera, you know, for years. I mean, no matter how often we lost, they were still writing the check and they were still helping and what have you. And so a bunch of them got together 
And I said to them something which I repeated that Friday, which was, because their greatest fear was that we would go to Washington and become normal. And I said, look, I'm going to cooperate, but I'm not going to compromise, which is a phrase I repeated at, at a heritage speech on Friday that week, which again led to a, a whole bunch of, but that, that I meant and that was deliberate. And um, it was important, you know, so I mean, I don't know that there was much exultation, uh, partly just because we had worked so hard for and so long that it was more a sense of exhaustion than exhilaration. But there was a huge sense of satisfaction. This gets into the territory in the sixth episode where I think you you, you uh, had some issues with. But I mean, I think what you're alluding to there was raised um, in the sixth episode. And, and I've, I've heard others make a similar argument that a lot of the skills that you had in the 16 years leading up to 1994, strategic skills, the approach to politics of drawing these very deep contrasts between the parties, um, of the kind of rhetoric you're talking about, counterculture, McGovernix, this sort of thing, that that hindered your transition to speaker and that ultimately hindered your effectiveness as House speaker. Is there validity to that? Not about the strategic part. I think, I think that was one of the keys. And I think if you looked at the opening 100 days, or opening 93 days, it was astonishing what we were doing and how fast we were doing it and how much we were dominating the media which was important because we had to keep momentum. And ultimately, it is Clinton's decision, which I think is in June, that he has to compromise with us, that he cannot be the defender of the left and get reelected. And that changed the world. I mean, if you look at the total number of things we accomplished, that you would have thought, you know, if I'd said to you in the preceding January, not only are we going to win a majority, but we'll get these things done in the next four years, you would have thought I was a lunatic. Now, I think there were two, I'd say maybe three big mistakes I made. I'm thinking out loud, so, which is, again, one of my weaknesses, um, but also one of the strengths. I mean, one was understanding the change in my position and what you could and couldn't do. We tried early on, for example, to do televised press conferences, which, which I thought would be a very good thing to do. Within a matter of weeks, we realized they just became target practice. I mean, the, the media would get together, the Democrats would feed them stuff, and it was not, not to our advantage to be doing it. So one was just making the transition. Second was, because I do like the media, and I just hang out here with you, um, I would do things that were analytical that were stupid. I mean, the whole, the whole thing about Gingrich complaining about coming off the airplane— was if you go back and actually look at the transcript. This is the government shutdown. During the government shutdown. Air Force One, yeah. Yeah, the whole thing came out of a Christian Science Monitor breakfast where I was trying to explain the weirdness that Clinton had all that time to sit and talk about how we could solve this and didn't, which they, of course, then trumped by showing me in a picture with Clinton. So see, they really were together, which wasn't my point. My point was, yeah, we were together. He was playing cards. And in fact, somebody who was with him said later, a week later, said, Gingrich was totally right. I was in the room. Clinton was not going to talk about anything serious. And I was just saying that you either could schmooze us and get closer to a deal, or you could basically ignore us and be further. And it was weird to watch him operate. Not something the Speaker of the House should have said. And it was perfectly legitimate 
for our opponents at the at the Daily News to have a crybaby Newt cover, which was not what I said at all. I mean, I was I was actually trying to be helpful and analytical, uh, and that and that that was clearly no longer what I could do. That wasn't who I was anymore. And then the other thing is something I, I was watching Kevin McCarthy. I flew with him for the last three days of the campaign, and I was just amazed. McCarthy's like my wife. Callista has this ability to interact with people, to remember people, uh, and to build networks of friends and sustain them for, you know, 50 years. I don't. I mean, I'm, I'm essentially, a, you know, I'm essentially a thinker. You know, I need lots of time to read and study and think. Uh, and I, don't, I think I failed to sustain the level of human friendship and human teamwork that would have been necessary. And it was compounded by both probably my own arrogance in making too many decisions and by the speed with which we were moving. I mean, I looked back later on and realized I probably averaged, I don't know, 102 hours a week. I once told somebody that if I had learned golf before I became speaker, I never would become speaker because I wouldn't have had the time. But if I had played golf while I was speaker, I'd have been a better speaker because it would have broken up the focus and the intensity. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I've always been a strong believer in the importance of investing wisely. That's why I've personally invested in Legacy Precious Metals. At Legacy Precious Metals, they're not leaving your financial future to chance. They're on a mission to help you secure your financial future post-retirement. In partnership with them, I'm thrilled to announce the launch of the Newt Gingrich contract with America Coin. This limited edition coin is made of one ounce of 99.99% fine silver, commemorating the historic moment when, against all odds, we balance the budget for the last time in U.S. history. This coin isn't just an investment. It's a piece of our nation's history. And now you can own it. As the holiday season approaches, it's the perfect gift. You can purchase yours today by calling 866-484-4043. That's 866-484-4043. Or order online at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. <laughs> like, what did we do? It's so slow. Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you. Thank you. 
I wanted to ask you some some sort of bigger picture questions here. I think just about. Um, All right. Here's one. Thinking back to when you won in '94, and again, my, my experience of absorbing this as a, as a spectator of American politics at the time, you know, was that this this was taken by many people, the Republican Revolution in '94, as the fulfillment of a 30-year march. Barry Goldwater starts in 64. Reagan gets elected in 80. You've got all these landslide Republican presidential victories. And now, finally, the permanent Democratic Congress has fallen. And we are now entering into an era of, of America being a sort of fundamentally conservative country. Did you feel that in the moment? And, I, and I'm curious if you can, since you are a historian and you, and you think – in, in, in kind of big picture terms, um, did you have a sense in that moment of where you thought America would be in about a generation? Well, I mean, first of all, when Bill Clinton comes to the State of the Union, yeah, I think it was in 96, and says the era of big government is over, you had some feeling that something had changed pretty profoundly. And I think it goes back to Goldwater, to Reagan's great speech that year, The Time for Choosing, then to Reagan's long campaign, and then to our winning. Uh, and, and frankly, one of the stories which someday will be written is neither George H.W. Bush nor George Bush had a clue. And so you have this, this, this perennial interruption. I mean, if George H.W. Bush had governed as a Reaganite, uh, we would have been in a very different place. And, and again, I think if George W. Bush had governed as a Reaganite. But if, if, if George H.W. Bush had governed as a Reaganite, and, and here we're, we're getting yeah. into that tax episode. He, ra- he says, read my lips, no new taxes. Then he cuts a deal with Democrats to raise taxes, and you go to war with the Bush White House, and right. it tears the Republican Party apart. But he also is a one-term president. How, how necessary was it to get control of the House oh. for a Democrat to come in in 93 and oh, look, I think, ironically, I think had George H.W. Bush been a Reaganite, and had he been a two-term president, we, ne- we wouldn't have been a majority. I, I think it's almost impossible to gain enough seats with an incumbent president of your own party, that you you have to have a reaction to the other side, which is why you see Pelosi arrive in six in reaction to Bush. You see Boehner arrive in 10 in reaction to Obama. Um, that's just the way it works. We end our story basically with your victory in 94, 95. Um, in the generation since— what do you think the biggest difference is between what the Republican Party is now and what it was where our story ended? Well, let me, let me say to a slightly different thing because you asked me a minute ago about whether or not that was the beginning of a generation of conservative mm-hmm. governance. Um, Reagan warns in his farewell address about the decay in American history and the decay in under, understanding American society. I would argue that while we were winning the political wars, we were losing the cultural wars, and that the society culturally was moving much further to the left at the very time that politically it was moving to the right. And that's the tension we're currently living in. Um, were you feeling that in 94? Yeah, we, we were aware of it in 94. And a lot of my comments, you go back and look at them, are really against the counterculture or against the kind of – against wokeism, if you will, as it became to, known a generation later. Um, 
Because you could, you know, it really goes back to the 70s and 80s. I mean, the first great surge of the left-wing culture is the late 60s, early 70s, when there were 2,500 bombings in a two-year period. So a lot of that stuff was coming down the road, and you could feel it coming down the road. But we didn't have a political response to it. And so I would say I could not have predicted where we are today. Um, but I would have probably predicted, if, if you had told me the evolution, I would have predicted the rise of a populist conservatism. The other thing where I think we just, I was just wrong, um, I really thought both with NAFTA and with WTO that entering a larger world market made sense. In retrospect, I think that Trump's critique of NAFTA is more accurate than my view. Um, and that the hope we had for China, the notion that Deng Xiaoping in being for open markets was a first step towards an open society, um, failed, uh, whether it was inevitably going to fail or whether it failed because of a counter-reaction by the Communist Chinese Party. I, I'm not quite certain. But the result was we gave away a great deal of American economic capacity in order to try to foster a China which did not emerge. And so in that sense, I'm probably much more an, a, uh, an America first person than I would have thought I would have been 30 years ago. We were also at that point at a moment of triumphalism. You know, the Soviet Union had collapsed. It was a unipolar world for all practical purposes. And we really had no peer competitor prior to probably 2016. So in, in terms of defining the Republican Party today, when you say that the culture was moving to the left, has moved to the left, are you including in that most Americans or are, is that no, a state? Well, it's, it's, it's mixed. It depends on what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, certainly in terms of the woke culture, that is a white, graduate educated, very small, but very, very powerful because they're, they're located in the corporate boards, they're located in the news media, they're located in the senior government. Um, so they wield power out of all proportion to their size. I think that what you have, the biggest change in the Republican Party is that we are now the party of high school graduates. And the Democrats are now the party of upper middle class, uh, relatively wealthy people. That's a very profound shift in the last 40 years. We, in a sense, we're closer to the Roosevelt coalition than the Democrats are. How much did – and I mean we, we in covering elections are, are showing this all the time, that college-non-college divide you're, you're speaking about there. Um, how much of that was a product of the 94 revolution? What I'm thinking of is when you look at old election maps and you could see like 1988 – I'll take, for instance, your, your native state of Pennsylvania, and you look at the Bush-Dukakis map for that election, and all the Philadelphia suburban counties are deeply Republican, and all of rural southwest Pennsylvania is deeply Democratic, and it's the exact opposite today. It's, it changed completely, and it's, this is true all across the country, for, for exactly what you're talking about, the college-non-college divide. Did the, the suburbanites, the, the college degree crowd, the, the whatever you want to call them— did they have a negative reaction to the Republican Party that you helped to bring about? Um, I don't – I'd have to look at the data for the Bush presidency and the votes in the 
after certainly they were still with us in 94 and and largely with us in 96 but 94 94 i think you'd have to check uh, i don't want to but i think 94 is the year that the the rural america left the democrats mm-hmm. i think you were seeing a gradual transition in the suburbs and i think it was accelerated because you know, ironically george h w bush was a genuine yale you know, northeastern person who happened to live in Houston. Uh, his son was, in many ways, while well, he went to Yale, was in many ways much more clearly a Texan. And I think that that probably in the suburbs further weakened. I'd have to go back and look at the 2004 election. But my hunch is that Kerry did better than Dukakis by a significant margin in the suburbs. Yes, that's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. Was, and, I, it, and it wasn't because they liked Kerry. I've I've looked at 2004, the Bush um, right. uh, carry map as Bush got about halfway, I'd say, to where Trump was able to get in six. Like he almost won Wisconsin. He almost yeah. won these states that the, the Pennsylvania, you know, that Trump was able to flip in 16. And he did it without massive suburban margins. He did. He, he started to well, make those huge inroads. rural margins. Yeah, he started to like you could see the outlines of what Trump pulled off in he 16 did. in 04 yeah. um, in, in that election. Um. Big picture, last generation, what's the biggest change in the Democratic Party? Oh, that there's there's no conservative or moderate wing left. Uh, the Democratic Party, I believe, has two wings, um, a weird wing and an insane wing. And you just, you just watch them and, you know, we're, we're now for Venezuelan oil. Well, what, what's the underlying mythology that would lead to that. We are for spending money overseas creating um, gay and lesbian working groups. Um, I mean, just go down a whole list of things we think, you know, we're we're for teaching third graders about their gender. Uh, This is not not a Democratic Party, which any, virtually any Democrat before— 2000 would have recognized. That depiction of the Democratic Party, um, that's your view of it. What do you think brought that about? What, what, what made that the Democratic Party in your, in your eyes? Well, I mean, look, I think there's a very important book to be written about the rise of the left, uh, starting to some extent with Marcuse, uh, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, the Black Panthers. I mean, you're starting, you have to start in the 60s, and you have to come all the way up to the present. Um, you know, the fact that the, the day after Trump was elected, there were organizing meetings in eight different cities within 24 hours to oppose him. Um, the, the networking of the left is astonishing and, and, and methodical and very well financed. And... Uh, I, I believe, look, I believe these people are all sincere. I mean, I didn't suggest they were hypocrites. I suggested they were A, weird, or B, insane. But I didn't suggest they were hypocrites. And I think that they have, the, they have entirely the passion that you would have had in the early Protestant Reformation um, or you would have among, say, Jesuits at their peak when they were genuinely the soldiers of the Pope. Um, and they're determined to change this country and they're determined— to destroy as many people as they have to to change the country. 
And they're, very, they're very close to both the French Revolution and to Bolshevism. I'm curious then why so much of what we talk about in the podcast is your emphasis on creating clear definition between the two parties and making, you know, countries see Republicans as the conservative opportunity society and the Democrats as the protectors of the liberal welfare state. And, and the great effort you went to, um, to try to bring that about. The description you're giving of the Democratic Party right now, um, what does it say that elections are essentially all 50-50 in this country right now? Biden wins a handful of states by 44,000 votes. He's the president. Trump wins a handful of states by 75,000 votes. He's the president. Does that you're, – you're identifying what you see as a radical shift in the Democratic Party, and yet the country – well, I, I think well, basically have, half the country seems comfortable with it. What do you what do you attribute that to? It's it is imp- very hard to overstate the scale of impact of the mass media and the degree to which they are part of the left. So I would say that the institutions that have the commanding heights are on the left, and the populace is on the right. But what you have are really superb mechanisms on the left. I mean, example, you go back to where, you know, Twitter decides that it will not only block Trump, who's the incumbent president of the United States, but it will block the oldest newspaper in America. Um, getting into Trump here, actually, that is a, that's a direction that some of the voices in our podcast went to, drawing a line from you to Donald Trump. And I, I guess what I, the way I wanted to ask you about this, there were a couple of things, but one is... Um, I was on the Hugh Hewitt radio show about a year ago, and he says the origin story for Donald Trump's 2016 campaign should be viewed as you on stage, uh, Newt Gingrich on stage in 2012 in South Carolina for that CNN debate. And that first question from John King, and I went back and watched it before talking to you today, and it it is, um, it, it turns into an attack on the media, and within 30 seconds, the crowd is literally on its feet. And Hugh Hewitt says that was the source of Trump's appeal to Republicans, and he saw it in that moment in 2012. Um, two things I wonder is, do you think Trump learned something from watching that in 2012? Do you think that's that's valid and accurate? And just watching it, I can feel the power of the moment to that crowd. What What is that? What were you tapping into? It was actually... Um, it actually started... At the very first debate, um, where the debate began with Brett Baer saying, um, we're not going to have any Mickey Mouse questions, and we're going to really focus on big issues. And I literally wrote it down as he said it. And about halfway through the debate, um, Chris Wallace can't help himself. And he asked me something, which is clearly a Mickey Mouse question. And I read back what Baer had said. And I went straight at him. And he never forgave me for this. And all of a sudden, there's this spontaneous applause. And the the, the audience is just totally on my side. The next day, I'm walking through O'Hare Airport because the debate was in Iowa. Uh, And uh, this airline pilot, who I have no idea who it is, walks up to me and says, 
I was so glad you took him on last night. I am so sick of those blankety-blank-blank people and how arrogant they are. And he walked off. And I thought, now there's an indicator. And consistently in every debate, and they, they finally figured it out, and at the very end they, they crippled me by changing, by, by insisting on rules where you couldn't have audience applause and you couldn't, you know. But up until that moment in virtually every debate, I would, I would have a fight with, the, with somebody in the media. Because I'd figured out that for conservatives, the media had become one of the major threats to their entire way of life. And they wanted somebody to be a champion to stand up and fight them. Now, you'd have to ask Trump whether or not he actually cued off of that. But given how much Trump watches television, uh, plus it's just his—see, I think Trump learned counterpunching from page six. I mean, I think he learned, and he writes about this, I think, in, in The Art of the Deal, that he had, his, he had this attack by the New York Times, but the very act of attacking him on page one about something he was doing with the building, told people about the building, and the next two weeks he had dramatically increased the number of people who wanted to rent from him because the New York Times had elevated it. So wh whether he got it from me or whether he already knew it, I don't know. But that was, but that was politically to the Republican base that you're going after in that primary. This was— this made you a compelling figure. And this is, this is a source issue. So what, because I, 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 you know, we can watch, and we have this in the, the podcast, audio of you in the 70s and 80s talking about what you call the elite media. Um, so it's been a theme you've, you've pressed. Theodore White writes about it in 68. But is, it, is, it, is that feeling among Republicans more intense now than it yes. was? Why? Yes. And I ask why, because the media is more, there was no Fox News until 25 no, no, years ago. When we say elite media, we all know what we mean. How would you define it? You. <laughs> I mean, look, you say MSNBC, NBC, CBS, ABC, CNN, um, the the various New York kind of publications, The Atlantic, et cetera, um, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The Atlanta Constitution. I mean, some of, some of these are, are – 50, 60, 70 year fights. Well, that, that's what I'm, that's why I'm curious. Why is, I guess what I'm trying to get at here is why is it more pronounced now, this feeling, given that like. Because the culture war is more pronounced. Mm -hmm. The idea that you would move the all-star game from Atlanta over a lie is exactly the sort of thing that, that makes people bitter. People used to be irritated. Now they're bitter. And I think that's what people – I think that's what the elites don't understand yet. You were one of the first prominent Republicans um, in 2016 to, to come on board with Trump after he started winning some sure. of those primaries. And, you were, and I know you were – before you had endorsed him, you were saying positive things. Did you have a sense – were you watching him saying he's reaching – he's connecting with the people I was trying to connect with? In, in Yeah. I mean, in a lot of ways, I think 16 and 12 in that sense are related. That if I'd – if I had been— And even further back, when you were trying to build a majority for the House, was that what I you— mean, I, Well, I mean, first of all, I'm, I am a genuine populist. I mean, that's not a mythology. And uh, I came out of a family that was blue-collar, central Pennsylvania. And I actually believe the country's better off to have a pretty broad populist base that is precisely what led to the great reforms in most of American history. And, I mean, I have— uh, you know, I have considerable affection for Andrew Jackson because he represented an uprising against the aristocracy. 
Um, and I, I, you know, I have a great affection for Lincoln because he really was the common man. And I believe in government of the people, by the people, and for the people. And that means inevitably you have to take on the New York Times and the Washington Post because they're not. Looking at the, the 2022 midterms, a lot of these candidates who tethered themselves very directly to Trump's message, especially around the 2020 election, you know, got defeated in their races. And it seemed very clear to me that Kevin McCarthy was trying to sort of follow your playbook from 1994 and, and had that kind of victory in mind. Um, the fact that, okay, Republicans have, have won the House, but it's going to be a small majority. Yeah. It's going to be the exact same size the Democrats had for the last the last two years. Um, does that speak to Trump's lingering presence, especially the feelings generated by the wake of the 2020 election? Does that speak to that limiting the Republican Party's appeal? Well, I have to tell you, one, I was wrong. I said publicly that I thought we'd have won a lot of seats in both the House and the Senate. I am probably more confused about American politics right now than at any point in my career. And part of the reason is, um, for example, people had all these theories about why Republicans did badly because they thought that our popular vote was the same as the election outcome. In fact, we carried a majority of the popular vote. Now, we, we did dramatically better with women than in 2018. Yet, supposedly, abortion really hurt us. We did marginally better. I think we had 19% of the black male vote, which is a significant jump. We did better with Latinos, uh, which we've done every election now for Every election, we're picking up three, four, five points in the Latino community. We uh, did dramatically better with Asian Americans, and I think that that's the beginning of the end. That community will presently be so alienated from the Democrats over everything from quotas to what the Democrats are doing to education, et cetera. So I look at all this. You look at a, you look at a Florida, and you you know you think, wow, there's Trumpism without Trump, and it's clearly astonishingly successful on a scale you you couldn't have dreamed two years ago of carrying Dade County. And, and it wasn't just Governor DeSantis. Marco Rubio was within a, a percentage point of DeSantis. I mean, so you look at that and you think, and we picked up four House seats, partly because DeSantis gerrymandered. Uh, so you look at that, you look at New York where we, we've lost the governorship and we get, you have a really interesting problem. This is what where I get totally confused. Given all the crime in New York City and all the problems in New York City, the Republican couldn't get above 31% in New York City. And you look at that and you think, so, you know, what is the tribalism that holds the system together no matter how painful it gets? I'm now thinking back to something you said early in our conversation where you talked about <clears throat> 16 years of trying to get to the House majority and you get there and you're the speaker and you went into it looking at it as a four-year proposition. Right. Because, to paraphrase what you're telling me, you, you were a disruptive force. You were going to take all of this incoming, and this was so there was sure. a there was a limited kind of period of effectiveness there. Um, listening to you describe 2022 and DeSantis in Florida, in particular, as Trumpism without Trump, and to win that race by almost 20 points, and all the stats you just cited, is this a moment for Trump to say essentially what would you had concluded about your own tenure that there's a, there's a. That's that's Trump's decision. 
you know, he but announced. As a Republican, what do you, I mean, well, you, no, you're when, looking when, at what DeSantis pulled off in Florida. Trump do you, announced. Right. And despite every effort by the elite media, including Fox, to avoid him, he's a force in his own right. Um, I told him in, in 16 that his model was Jack, Andrew Jackson and that he understand, had to understand that the entire establishment would try to destroy him. Now, I have to confess, they worked at it more than I thought they would. I'll tell you a quick story. I went to see Cap Weinberger at one point when he was Secretary of Defense, and I said, I'm really curious. We're having a huge fight over the MX mobile missile. The left is going crazy. They've been going crazy now for eight months. And you cling to it. I mean, why are you, why are you keeping this fight up? And he looked at me and said, Newt, if I dropped the missile this afternoon, do you think the left would thank me? Or do you think they'd find a new target? So the longer I can keep them fixated, the better off I am. And I ain't dropping this missile as long as I can avoid it. I thought it was a really interesting strategic insight. If Donald Trump were to announce today he's not running, the entire weight of the left would go to work to destroy DeSantis. And DeSantis in three months wouldn't be DeSantis. You alluded to the, you said you're, you're confused by where things are now and you're Next 20 years are, are very fascinating, potentially. Um, I'm wondering, the, the theme of our podcast is essentially how politics became nationalized. And you nationalized a midterm election right. and you broke the Democratic majority. And I've watched and you've watched over the last generation, I think, as this process of nationalization has really, I think, intensified. Um, to me, it's left us in a situation where it seems like almost every election is a 50-50 election. Um, again, the House was 222, 213 Democrats before this election. It'll be 222, 213 Republicans after. Joe Biden wins the presidency by a combined 44,000 votes in three states. Donald Trump wins it by 75,000 in three states. I mean, this is, this is where we are. Um, this level of polarization, do you see in this next 20 years a way out of it? Yeah, one, one side or the other will win. How can you? How and can then, you? And then win? you'll go back to comedy in the house <laughs> because the minority side will decide it has to accommodate the reality. You uh, think one side can build a? Oh, well, sure. Eventually they will. I mean, I, I can't tell. Look, we went through this from 1876 to 1896. I mean, you have cycles like that. You know, Bill Clinton tried, just as Tony Blair tried, uh, to create an alternative center to the left. So it's. The deepest reason the left hated him and dislikes Hillary. Um, somebody may come along one day with be able to do that, but it's, it's hard to, for me to see institutionally how that happens with the Democrats because of the power structure. On the other hand, some morning the Republicans, whether it's a Yunkin, Yunkin would not be savage nearly as much because he doesn't he doesn't quite feel as Trumpite as DeSantis does. Uh, but somebody somebody will come along presently who will have all of the core values of the right, but not in any way infuriate the middle, and will be able to either be impervious to or to not excite the hostility of the media. Not just the media, but the whole—but but, but my hunch is that anyone who stands for a non-left future is going to have to survive being savaged. That it's just it, it would it's it's such an intolerable vision uh, for the left, and that's why it's really it's a genuine cultural war. 
All right. Well, that How's is that? I, that's that's where I wanted to end it. Your your vision of the future. I, was, I appreciate you doing this. Really, I thought I, this was, I, this was great fun. From MSNBC, this is the bonus episode of The Revolution. If you like what you've heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And be sure to tell your friends and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. The Revolution was written and hosted by me, Steve Kornacki. The series is produced by Franny Kelly, Ursula Summer, and Adam Naboa. It's edited by Allison McAdam. Our associate producer is Eva Ruth Moravec. Our audio engineer for this episode is Bob Mallory. Special thanks to Lacey Roberts. Sound designed by Ramteen Arablui. Bryson Barnes is our technical director, and he wrote our music. Soraya Gage is our executive producer. And Madeline Herringer is our head of editorial. Ever thought about owning a piece of history? Introducing the Newt Gingrich Contract with America coin from Legacy Precious Metals. My limited edition silver coin celebrates the historic Republican victory in 1994, marking a turning point in American politics. Give a gift with real historical weight this season. Order now at NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. That's NewtGingrichSilverCoin.com. Hey, this is John Ridley. And this is Matt Carey, documentary editor at Deadline. And welcome to Talk Talk. John, we've got a hard-hitting episode today. A lot of controversy. Well, maybe we should put the word controversy in quotes in the documentary field about the nominees for Best Documentary Feature. We're going to get into that with some amazing panelists. You get a shot, but the individuals behind every one of those images, they're complicated and they are human. This has been Doc Talk. Thank you. Great conversation. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. Videos that are moderated by actual people. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about social trolling. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. Are you looking to step up to a 4K smart TV? One that gives you unparalleled clarity and picture resolution? Then we've got good news for you. Because the Vizio 65-inch V-Series 4K smart TV is now just $348. With all your favorite apps built in, you can stream straight out of the box. You can even sing along to all your favorite music and radio on the iHeartRadio app. Looking for a smaller or bigger screen? Vizio offers unbeatable prices on all V-Series 4K smart TVs. Head to Walmart.com today and score the 4K TV you've been waiting for. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer.